ready for our ninth uh, lesson. Uh, we are on, well, our catechism has six chief parts. Ten Commandments, Apostles' Creed, Lord's Prayer, then we have Baptism, Confession Absolution, and Lord's Supper. We've gone through eight commandments. Today we're going to take a look at ninth and tenth. Next time we'll look at the close of the commandments, and that'll finish that section up. We've gone through the Apostles' Creed, which deals with creation and the Father, the Son and what he has done for us, and the Holy Spirit who works through his church. Um, so we've got kind of the creed uh, that's done. We haven't done Lord's Prayer yet. I'm saving that one. Um, the Lord's Prayer is a response to the Word. The Word is both law and gospel, or the Ten Commandments and the Creed. Teach us, and then we pray in response. So you kind of got to get the Word in first before you can pray in response. So we'll get to that one. We've taken a look at baptism last time, uh, or baptism before, then the confession, uh, absolutely. <coughs> Today we're going to be taking a look, after the Ninth and Tenth Commandment, we're going to be taking a look at Lord's Supper. We're not going to finish. So we're going to get all the way, and then we're going to uh, uh, finish up Lord's Supper next time. So, let's take a look. You should have uh, the printout that has the new, new to us, uh, mm -hmm. catechism rendering, um, and we're going to take a look at the ninth and 10th commandments. The first three commandments deal with love of God. The commandments 4 through 10 deal with love of neighbor. We've already talked about honoring your father. We've talked about the gift of life. We've talked about the gift of marriage. We've talked about speaking the truth. Uh, uh, no, sorry, that was 8. Uh, possessions, 7. Now we're on to number 9, which is the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. What does this mean? The Catechism says we should fear and love God that we may... Ooh, I left off a word. Not. Huh? Sounds like we ought to seek. There ought to be a not there. <laughs> you better put a not in there. I'm going to be in trouble as a false teacher. Um, that we may not craftily seek to get our neighbor's inheritance or house nor obtain it in the show of right. Uh, but we're supposed to help and be of service to him in keeping it. Uh, so what's forbidden? Again, with each one of these, you have uh, something that is both commanded and forbidden. So the ninth commandment, we're to not scheme to get. Uh, and that scheming to get may, may be in a way that... that appears right to uh, uh, to people, but nevertheless, it's it's taking away. Uh, but what we're supposed to do is help and be of service to him in keeping it. Uh, what about this coveting? Uh, the word covet is simply a sinful desire, not any desire. Um, uh, if you get the uh, uh, toy catalog, 
before Christmas. Looking <laughs> through, and you're trying to see. You may have a desire. It may be something that you want. Um, it becomes a sinful desire if you wish to acquire this without paying for it. That would make it a sinful desire, or if it is something that the Lord has not uh, uh, put within your means that you might have. Uh, a sinful desire for something that is that does not belong to you or the means God has given. So, uh, this is what uh, you shall not cover your neighbor's house. Uh, we're going to include with the house all of the things that are of, of possessions. Um, we should notice not, not faithfully seek to get our neighbor's inheritance or house or anything by that. Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place, that they may be placed alone in the midst of So those who are trying to acquire and to, you might say, get everything and, and uh, leave nothing to everyone, this is this kind of uh, desire. Talks about the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, says they're hypocrites. They teach one thing, but actually what do they do? They devour widows' houses. Um, that is, they make plans, you might say, by uh, tricking the widows into leaving their house to their uh, to the religious. And so um, uh, they make a, for a pretense, that is, they make long prayers, not because they have a lot to say to God, but they're doing it so that people would see them. Uh, and he talks about they will receive uh, the greater damnation. First Timothy 6, Paul is telling Timothy, but godliness with contentment. So with each one of these gifts, we're not supposed to kill or harm, but what's the gift that God's protecting? Life. Uh, we're not to commit adultery. What's God protecting? Marriage. In this commandment, God wishes us to have contentment. That's the gift that he has given us, uh, that we might be content with what we have, that we would make sure that what someone else has, that we don't swindle it out of them or, or desire to have what belongs to them. What are we to do? Help our neighbor, be of service to him in keeping his inheritance and his house. Um, yeah, uh, make sure that they keep, just as we talked about with the... Uh, with the seventh commandment on stealing where we would return, we also want to speak with them about being content with what God has uh, given. We go on to the tenth commandment, which is that, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his cattle, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. What does this mean? The Catechism says, we should fear and love God that we may not estrange, force away, or entice away from our neighbor, his wife, servants, or cattle, but urge them to stay and do their duty. Well, now, wait a minute. We already had a coveting commandment with the ninth one. Uh, we got a second coveting commandment. Evidently, uh, this uh, sin of sinfully desiring is a rather serious offense and is something that God wishes us uh, to guard against. It lets us know that it's not just the act and it's not just the words, but we already have sin when we look inside ourselves at our desires. 
just mm-hmm. as with murder, we talked about already at hate, you've committed a, a sin. With uh, adultery, already with lust in your heart. So with this one already with coveting in our heart, uh, we brought nothing into this world, but certainly can take nothing out. Having food and raiment, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and the snare into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For, it's not the money, it's not the stuff. I mean, God protects the stuff. It's the love of it. It's the sinful desire, the love of money that's the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, these sinful desires after, what does it do? Uh, it can cause them to err or to wander from the faith. They pierce them through with many sorrows. It, it, it doesn't help. Um, this will not grant you happiness. It's not that the possession of those, there are many people in the scriptures where the God has blessed them. Um, whether you have little or whether you have much is not the concern. The concern is that the sinful desire or the covenant. When we get to the 10th commandment, we're no longer speaking about things. We're actually speaking about, as it mentioned here, a, a, a wife, a spouse, a, a people. Um, what happens? Oh, you, uh, uh, you estrange, you get some away. Oh, your husband, you know, you're right. He's really not good for you and you ought to leave him and you ought to. And so what you do is by your words, you may acquire someone else's. Well, they, you know, they were divorced and they, yeah, but what did you do? Um, yeah, you may do it by force. You may do it by trickery. You may entice them away. Uh, from this, but but no, we are not to, in no wise are we to urge or elude them uh, uh, to leave them. And so we ought to urge our neighbor's wife, servants, to stay and do their duty. That's what God has given them, that you would be content uh, with the spouse uh, which has been given. Of what would God remind us particularly in these last commandments, saying, Thou shalt not covet two things, that in God's sight, evil lust is indeed and truly sin. Um, Two, that we should have no evil lust, whatever in our hearts, but only holy desires and love of God and all that is good. So, um, it lets us know that even when these things come, uh, we ought to confess them. We ought to fight against them, lest it lead us to the word and to the deed, which is far worse, of course. But already, uh, uh, these are sins. Um, James 1 lets us know that every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Um, We realize, let's cut this off at the beginning. Don't wait until later. Let's deal with it right up front. Uh, that uh, we might, it might not uh, finally lead to us uh, eternal death. So that gives us the ninth and the tenth, which is the covenant uh, commandments, which uh, normally follows with that where we're going to talk about original sin. We're going to talk about the desires that come from the heart, and that's why, like in this morning's uh, uh, readings, uh, we talked about uh, the pure heart. What do we know? From Adam already, uh, um, we have a sinful nature. With that, like the rest, by nature, it brings wrath, sinful desires in and of themselves. Uh, it leaves the man spiritually blind, dead. He doesn't accept the things come from it. Um, these sinful desires are hostile. It's a sinful mind, and it causes actual sin. 
So the Lord wishes to spare us by saying, let's deal with this right up front, um, that we might confess. Uh, and so then we have thoughts, feelings, words, and deeds, and that, that which comes forth. I think that's all I have. Oh, there's the tenth. Evil desires. Uh, what does the Lord desire? Holy desires. Psalm 119, turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Uh, we ask the Lord to give us a heart. We ask the Lord to, to change it. One of the ways, uh, Paul, at, in the book of Philippians, that he talks about this, he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, he says, think about such things. We often call this the replacement. <laughs> uh, um, not only should you fight against that which is evil, but replace it with that which is good. If you're gossiping and hurting your neighbor, replace it with, replace it with good words in which you support um, think about those things which are right and lovely, and that's what we do as we hear the, the Word of God. Alright, so that gets us ninth and tenth commandment. Um, let's move forward. Your next uh, uh, page should have the sacrament of the altar. We're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper. Again, we've talked about baptism. We've talked about confession absolution with the Office of Keys, and now we're going to talk about Lord's Supper. <clears throat> Usually we speak of two sacraments, baptism, Lord's Supper. Sometimes we put confession absolution because it has forgiveness of sins, though it doesn't have a, uh, an outward element. All right, so sacrament of the altar. Uh, by what other names is this sacrament known? We call this a lot of things. In the very same way, um, I'm told that... Uh, uh, in Alaska and some of the colder regions, uh, that they have lots of names for snow. You kind of go, well, you know, we might have, we call it, maybe it's a flurry or, you know, something like that. But I'm told that they have what? Because they've got lots of it, and it's important to them. Uh, for us, the sacrament of the altar is particularly important. We're going to talk about it as the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says, you can't be a partaker of the Lord's table and the table of demons. So here he's talking about Lord's Supper. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, uh, where he's talking about the early Christian church, he says that they continued steadfastly, not only in the word and the gathering together, but in the breaking of bread. And so that also being a term that is used for Lord's Supper. Uh, when you come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. That's referred to in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, 24, so it goes on, and when he had given thanks, it said he broke it. Um, sometimes we simply call it the breaking of the bread uh, for uh, reference to Lord's Supper. Um, or, as it talks here about taking of the one loaf, the one bread, uh, there are words like Eucharist, which means the giving of thanks. Um, he had given thanks. Eucharist is a word meaning giving thanks. Uh, it might refer to the union, communion, which you have between uh, the bread and the body and the wine and the blood. And so it is a holy communion. So we have quite a, a few words uh, that deal with Lord's Supper. Um, <clears throat> There are, in the Luther Small Catechism, there are five uh, questions. 
The second question is the words of institution. So we're going to talk about the words of institution because that sets everything up for what it is. That's where Jesus instituted. So that'll go, we'll talk about it with all the others. So we got four questions left. We're going to talk about what is it? What, what is it? We're going to talk about what do you get with it? What are the benefits? Um, and uh, then the next one says, well, how can it do this? We're going to talk about how the word can do this. The last question is going to be worthy reception. I'm hoping to get through three out of four. Then we'll, uh, uh, that one can lead to so many, uh, to many other things. So, what is it? What is the Lord's Supper? Luther says it is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine for us Christians to eat and to drink instituted by Christ himself. Where is this written? Well, it's written in the scriptures. Here I give you a copy uh, of a book I have. Not only does it uh, set it side by side, Matthew chapter 26 has these words. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body, and it goes through. In Mark 14, uh, Mark records the words this way. And as they were eating, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, saying, Take, this is my body, going on. Luke records it. He has in connection with Lord's Supper, and he says, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, John's Gospel doesn't have it. He was the last one to write, and so he wrote about some other things. You already had three accounts. But St. Paul, when he is dealing with a problem in the Corinthians congregation in 2 Corinthians 11, St. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that, and then he goes in, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was portrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and goes through. And he also uh, quotes uh, the words of institution. As you can tell, some of these things... They're not exactly the same. Matthew has the word eat, take, eat. Mark has take, just take. Um, Luke has this is my body, but doesn't have the take in that uh, uh, eat. St. Paul follows kind of Luke's rendering. Um, they're not exactly the same, but you can tell that they are referring to the exact same words. What has the church done? Well, in the words of institution, what we have done is we have taken this one and this one and this one and this one, put them all together so that we lose none of the words. And so, this one may not have eat, but this one has eat, so we'll include it. And so, that's what we do when we put these together. We have the fullest version uh, that is included of the words, because we know that he spoke all of these words, whether they were all recorded as such. <laughs> and so, these words from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul, uh, that's why we include, take eat this my body, which is given for you this do and remember. So that, that's where they come from. That's the words of institution. Why are they found four times? That they may be unto us all the more clear, sure, and important. 324, who has ordained and instituted this sacrament? Well, it was our Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, who is true, all-wise, and almighty. 
um, he's the one who was able to do this. So not only did he say do it, he instituted it and ordained that it would continue to happen. <laughs> Which are the visible external signs in this sacrament? Well, there are uh, uh, two. One, there is bread uh, prepared of, of flour, uh, and there is wine, which comes from the fruit of the vine. What does Christ give us under these external signs, the visible things, in the Holy Supper? Well, in with and under the bread, he gives us his true body, and in with and under the wine, he gives us his true blood. If you look on the next page, I give you a chart to kind of uh, show you uh, how the various groups of Christianity have uh, spoken about <laughs> these four elements of uh, bread, wine, Christ's body, and Christ's blood. <clears throat> to kind of go through, and, and we'll come to it, uh, as I've just mentioned, in the scriptures, it teaches that there are four elements. There are two visible, the bread and the wine, yes, and the Christ's body and blood, two heavenly things that we cannot see, sense, touch, feel, uh, um, that are included. However, the Reformed churches uh, usually divide up uh, into Roman Catholic, uh, Lutheran, uh, by the scriptures, and those that went beyond Reformed so much so that they left the word behind, uh, the Reformed. The Reformed Church says that there is only bread and wine in Lord's Supper, and Christ's body and blood are not there. Question 327, why is it inadmissible to take the words, this is my body, this is my blood, in an improper or a figurative sense. So what happens? The Reformed churches, the Baptists, the Pentecostals, the whatever, uh, um, many of them uh, will say that, no, there's bread and wine, but it's not the body and blood at all. And you kind of, well, what about when Jesus says it is? Oh, he's just talking figuratively. It's just a figure of, of something else. I go, well, well, what else is there a figure of? I mean, what? Um, I know that there are times in which we uh, speak that way. I might um, say, okay, uh, this is a, a parking lot. Uh, this is a car. Right. Is that a car? No, and so I am speaking figuratively concerning. But then you say, well, you know, what about... Jesus' words, was he using this kind of figure of speech where he is using something else to describe something else? Well, maybe he's just talking about uh, where the scriptures say the body of Christ, which is like the church and the believers. And I go, so so he wants me to eat believers? Yeah, I mean, wait, wait a minute, what do you, where do you get this? Um, no, it, you can't. There are times in which there are uh, times in which we have poetry, or we have uh, um, uh, times in which there's apocalyptic language where they're speaking this way. This is Jesus teaching on the night of uh, uh, his betrayal. Uh, number one, 
why can't I speak of this in a figurative sense? Because Christ expressly says that he distributes that body which is given for us. And it's not the church, it's not some other kind of thing. And it's that blood which is shed for us, which would be his blood. So it's got to be the regular body and, and blood. Furthermore, uh, when St. Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians, Paul, you would think if Paul was going to explain this, and it was supposed to be figurative, he would tell us it was. But Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians and says, the cup of blessing... Lord's Supper cup, the cup that we uh, a blessing, which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Is there not a union with the blood? Is not the blood of Christ there? Is it not united with? Union with? Calm is with? The bread which we break, is it not a communion of the body of Christ? So Paul lets us know quite well that these two go together. And then when he gets down to verse 27 in chapter 11, whoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So if you misuse this sacrament, you're not just sinning against a figure of speech. You're sinning against the body and blood that's actually present. You'll be guilty of misusing our Lord's body and blood. In fact, you know, even if you try to say, ah, this body of the Lord, that's just a bunch of believers, I go, what does the blood of the Lord represent? <laughs> There's no other here. Number three, the other reason why we can't speak this way is that uh, these are the words of institution. They're the words of divine ordinance. They're words of a divine testament. That is, if someone is making their last will and testament and they're trying to clearly tell you something before they die, you don't want them giving you representative figure. You know, you don't want to write your last will and testament in riddles and, and you know, I'm, I'm speaking in that way. No, you want to make it real clear. I want you to receive this. I want you to receive this. Um, that's what these are. This is my blood of the new testament. This is his last will and testament. Uh, we can't change. If it be a man's covenant, uh, yet if it be confirmed, no man can disannul it. You can't change someone's last will and testament. And, and if this is the way he wanted it to be, then, then that's what he means. Uh, the Reformed churches teach that it just represents. It just represents. It's not really... Uh, this ring just represents that I'm married, but it's not my merit. No. Uh, uh, the true essential, here's what they say. They say the true essential body and blood of Christ is absent from the consecrated bread and wine in the Holy Supper as far as the highest heaven is from the earth. So, uh, uh, Jesus and his body and blood, they say, is in heaven, and down here we have bread and wine. Those are far apart, the Reformed churches teach. The bread and wine, they say, it only signifies, it represents, bears signs or symbols of the absent body. Some will say the body and blood are not present. The Lord's Supper is only an external sign by which Christians are known. So, what are they? What about this? Well, what? It's not the Christ body and blood. Oh no, it's not at all. So why do you do this? Well, to let people know that you are a Christian. When you celebrate Lord's Supper, you show them that you are obeying what Jesus said when he instituted this. And when you do this, you let other people know that you're a Christian. That's what it's about. Some will say, oh, well, yeah, yeah, we do believe he's present. Oh, you believe the body? Well, he's a present according to his divine nature. 
alone, but not with his body and blood. All of a sudden they separate Jesus. Well, he's divinely, but but his body and blood is caught up in heaven and he can't be down here, but only his divine. Yeah, you know, that's not what it says. Uh, some will say, well, it's present spiritually. What do you mean? Well, with respect to faith. That is our faith. Our faith elevates itself, ascends up into heaven, receives and enjoys the body of Christ, which is in heaven. What? So it's not here. What, do, what are you talking about? Uh, Christ with his benefits, the only way I get by spiritually. Um, uh, I One time I was going on a, uh, on a trip, I was going on a business trip, and uh, uh, Sadie, I, I was teaching something like this, like the Sunday before, you know, and then on Monday or something, I had to go on a pastor, I had to go away, and um, Sadie didn't know this, she was in Bible class, uh, a little Sunday school class, and, and I was getting ready to go, and she says, Dad, I'll be with you in spirit. And I thought, you little reformed girl. I go, you know, this is that kind of, yeah, Jesus is with me. Was she really with me? What does that mean? I don't know what that means. I go, I'm going away. You're not with I'll be with you in spirit. You're not with me. In the same way, that's what they're saying when they say, oh, well, Jesus, he is there because he's there in spirit. And I go, yeah, that's that's not the way uh, uh, it, it's required. No. Um, according to the words of institution, a literal interpretation is required. We have to read it in the sense that Jesus intended it. A word must have its native meaning unless circumstances or context plainly indicates that it is to be a figurative sense. When Jesus teaches us that he is, uh, uh, I am the door, uh, or I am the good shepherd, and then he goes on to explain. He explains why it's to be understood in that way. He never does it with this one. Um, uh, context plainly indicates. N- none of the holy writers indicate that this should be interpreted figuratively. In fact, they teach that it is truly present. So, when the Reformed churches tell us, no, there's no body and blood. It's just bread and wine. Um, they're just having a little snack. <clears throat> Question 328. Do the bread and wine remain in the Lord's Supper, or are they changed into the body and blood of Christ? The Roman Church teaches something called transubstantiation. Um, We do not. They are not changed. But in fact, the bread and wine remain. Why do I say this? Well, St. Paul expressly teaches that while the Lord's Supper is being eaten and drunk, he refers to it, the bread is still bread and the wine is still wine. So in 1 Corinthians 2, verse uh, 11, 26 and 28, as often as you eat this bread, it's referring to the Lord's Supper, so there is still bread that is there, and as often as you drink this cup, which had the wine in it, you do show the Lord's death till he comes, and he goes on to say, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Um, obviously, as he is talking about Lord's Supper, where Christ's body and blood is, he still uses the references to what is in the cup wine and the reference to blood it's, or bread itself. So where did this uh, come from? 
Catholic theologians, such as Thomas Aquinas in the Scholastic period, have implored what is called Aristotelian concepts of substance and accident in articulating the theology of the Eucharist. Particularly, they talk about the transubstation, transubstantiation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. Uh, according to this tradition, the accidents of the bread and wine do not change, but their substances change from bread and wine to the body and blood of Christ. Okay, it's scholastic Aristotelian logic. How does this happen? The Roman theologians were asked, well, how did it become the body and blood of Christ? And they said, well, we could use logic to explain this. So here's the thing. There is, uh, according to Aristotle, there are two things. There's the substance and the accidents. So, the, uh, the substance of, uh, of this, what is it? It's a remote control, and it, it works the overhead. The accidents of it are, it is white, it is about this high, it is hard. Um, those are its accidents. Now, you can have something else that has hardness, that has whiteness. Um, it's a table. But, the, but we know, wait, the substance is table. Those are just accidents, whiteness and hardness and, and whatever. So those things can change. But, but we, we learn both parts of, of this. So here's what they said. They said, okay, before it be, before it's used in Lord's Supper, there is bread, that's what it is, and its accidents are it is chewable, it is porous, you can see it, um, you can touch it, um, gra grainy maybe you would, you would say. But after it becomes the body and blood of Christ, the substance becomes Jesus' body. But the accidents of the bread remain. So it still looks like bread. It still tastes like bread. Those are all accidents. But the substance is different. And so there has been a trans, a change of the substance, while the accidents remain. Okay. I'm, I'm Aristotelian logic. Or, you know, you kind of follow this and you kind of go, okay, what? The problem <laughs> is that Lutherans kind of go, well, yeah, but we hold to the word of God. The Lutheran response is that, as regards transubstantiation, we have no idea how this happens. I, I don't know. If, 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 maybe that's true. Um, but Paul says the bread's still there. We care nothing about sophistical, sophistical subtlety by which they teach the bread and wine never leave or lose their natural substance. They remain the appearance and color of bread, but not true bread. Um, and in fact, it's not even a good agreement. It's not a perfect agreement with the Holy Scriptures that say that bread remains. Um, we don't. So how is it there? We go, I haven't a clue. I don't know how it's there. I know that there is bread and wine. I know that now there is body and blood. And so um, uh, when we speak about this, usually we use the um, three prepositions. We say it's in, with, and under. The, the body of Christ is in, with, and under the bread. And we use those three prepositions not because we, we have it, but 
because we don't know how it's there. Somehow, is it in? Is it under? Is it with? Is you know? Uh, um, and that's what we confess, and we say that uh, uh, it must be. Um, we don't know how it is, and so we speak of four elements. The Roman Church says no, bread and wine have ceased to be, and it is only the body and blood. And we say, well, we don't know anything about that. The Roman Church have, uh, uh, have said to us, you guys just believe in consubstantiation. That is, that there's a substance with this, as if they're kind of mixed together, like oil and wine, and they're like two different things, and like somehow I could say, well, this part's bread and, and this part's the body. Uh, the Roman Church accuses the Lutheran Church of teaching that the substance of the body and blood of Christ are mixed with the substance of bread. Lutherans deny it, uh, saying, in addition to the expressions of Christ, the bread and the wine, the bread in the supper is the body of Christ, or the communion of the body of Christ. Also, we'll use the forms under the bread, or with the bread, or in the bread, for the bot to teach that it's employed. We, we don't know um, what, what that means. Uh, what we usually end up saying is there is a union. A, we call it a sacramental union. Uh, somehow those things are all present. So, here's what, uh, 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 going back to our diagram, you know, uh, uh, the Roman Church says, well, it stopped being bread and wine, and it's only body and blood, even though it kind of looks like it has accidents. Uh, the Reformed Churches say, well, it's just bread and wine, and it never was body and blood, and it's not there. Um, we actually confess two visible and two heavenly, or four uh, things that are present in the Lord's Supper. That's what it is. Uh, for what use? Uh, um, oh, I think I have... Um, no, I guess I didn't include it. Um, there's a quote from Martin Luther that... Um, uh, that somewhat illustrates this. And and I don't know, I mean, it's not really the best illustration, but uh, Luther at one point, they said, well, you know, what about, uh, they, they teach one thing and they, they teach the other. And, and Luther said, well, I'd much rather have the body and blood with the Roman church than bread and wine with the reformed. <laughs> yeah. At least the one confesses that Christ is actually there. We may disagree on how it's there, or we might say that's probably not the way it happened, but um, at least in that instance, uh, they do uh, uh, confess the truth of Christ's body and blood being present. Going on, 329. For what use uh, does Christ give us, that is, Christians, his body and blood under the bread and wine? For what purpose? Well, it is to eat and drink it. That's what it says in the words of indistribution. Just as we go back there to see, uh, not only to eat, as if in distributing and eating Christ's body, his blood too were distributed and received, so we receive it that way, but it should not be used in other uses. Blood is neither for adoration, um, that is, that you might say the words of institution where the elements are there and then say, no, we're not going to eat and drink it, we're not going to give it up, we'll just set it out and have you bow down to it and look at it and pray to it. Um, Jesus never said that in the words of institution. Nor is it to be an unbloody sacrifice for the sins of the living of the dead. Um, that is the definition of what the Romans call the sacrifice of the mass. 
um, Jesus never said that this was a sacrifice or, or unbloody, uh, nor is it to uh, somehow being able to be distributed in other ways. What does the words of institution say? Um, they say, drink ye all of it, and they all drank of it. Um, that's what it's for, that we might eat and drink for the remission of sins. What about something like the adoration of the host or something like a Corpus Christi procession? We call those apart from the use. Um, and apart from the use, when in the Papistic Mass, the bread is not distributed, but offered up or enclosed, born about, exhibited for adoration, we are to regard it as no sacrament. Just as the water of baptism, when used to consecrate bells, cure leprosy or otherwise exhibited for worship, it's no sacrament or baptism. When you don't use it the way God said to do it, what is it? Well, I don't know what it is, but it's not baptism or it's not Lord's Supper. For against such papistic abuses, this rule has been set up at the beginning of the receiving of the gospel and has been explained by Luther that we do nothing apart from its use. So, if Jesus said for us to eat and drink it, that's what we do with it. When you begin to uh, change things, I don't know what's going on. So, what if I take, I think I talked about it with baptism, what instead of using water to pour upon an infant and say in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit, what if uh, uh, we want to put rose petals in the bowl and we'll just take the rose petals and drip them down or just sprinkle them on someone? Is that a baptism? Well, I don't know what that is, but it's not a baptism. Because Jesus said use water. And he said, you know, if you use water and you change the words. Um, I baptize you in the name of the mother God of all creation and mother nature and whatever. You know, I, it's not a Similarly, in the same way, what if you change the elements? What if you say, well, instead of having... Uh, bread and wine, we're going to have cookies and we're going to have beer. Well, it's not Lord's Supper. You change the elements uh, uh, that go with it in the same way. What if we do something different with it? Instead of eat and drink it, what if we set it out to all look at it? Well, I don't know what that is, but that's not Lord's Supper and there's no benefits that you receive from it. What about eating and drinking? 3.30. What manner of eating and drinking takes place in the Holy Supper? Well, natural, of course, uh, the bread and, and the wine go into our mouth, and we actually receive them as we do normal food, not only natural. Yes, there is also a spiritual, uh, but particularly we're talking about a sacramental eating and drinking, a special eating and drinking. That is, the earthly elements, bread and wine, and... The heavenly gifts, that is, I'm receiving Christ's body and blood at the same time that my mouth, uh, uh, that's taken with the body, is just I'm taking the natural. Well, how do I receive Christ's body? I don't know. In a supernatural way, he said for us to eat and to drink it. Um, there have been some uh, who have said that, that, well, this is terrible. Um, that's why we don't think Christ's body and blood is there, because that, that would be like cannibalistic. You're like taking somebody else's body and you're, uh, um, you know, ripping of the heart with your teeth. Not my, my teeth are obviously taking the natural. 
how do I receive in a supernatural way the body and blood of Christ? I, in the same way, I guess, I don't know. Um, I go with what our Lord says. Uh, not only natural, but the former is taken in a natural way, the latter is taken in a supernatural manner. Again, I'm stuck with the words. If it had explained it to me uh, in his words of institution, I could give you an answer, but I, I'm not sure. What does Christ our Lord enjoin? What does he tell us to do uh, when we do this? He says, this do in remembrance of me, that this sacrament should forever be administered in his church and under the consecrated bread and wine, his body is to be eaten and his blood to be drunk. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Um, this is what he wants us to do. He wants us to do it faithfully remembering what he has done and he is giving for us. When only is our Lord's Supper truly the Lord's Supper? Well, when it's administered according to Christ's institution. Uh, when we do something different, I don't know what it is, but the only way is making sure that we follow what he said in his words. Are we to receive the Lord's Supper but once? Well, as we do in Holy Baptism, only once. No, we should receive it frequently. And here, too, we should be prompted by Christ's command and promise and by the trouble that lies upon us. So just as he said, do this, he wants it done repeatedly, as often it is uh, offered for us, uh, that we might receive the benefits of it. So we've talked about what it is. Let's take a look at the second part. What do we receive? What is the benefits or purpose of this Lord's Supper? Second question. What is the benefit of such eating and drinking? This is shown us by the words, and again, we keep going back to the words, given and shed for you for the remission of sins. Namely, that in the sacrament, forgiveness of sins, life and salvation are given us through these words. For where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. So in the words, forgiveness of sins or remission of sins, same thing, we say, well, that I know that I'm receiving. That's the benefit. That's what I get. Uh, what words teach that? Given and shed for you for the remission of sins. And where there is forgiveness of sins, well, what follows uh, is that rather than death, I get life. Rather than damnation, I get salvation. What do these words tell us? That unto everyone who eats and drinks Christ here. Uh, to, eats and drinks, Christ here gives as a seal of the remission of sins that same body and blood wherewith he upon the cross earned and procured the forgiveness of sins. So by receiving the body and blood that he used to secure it, we receive as a pledge that we are forgiven of our sins. <clears throat> but how do these words speak of life and salvation? Where there is forgiveness, there is also life and salvation. What's the purpose, then, do we approach the Lord's Supper? So, we know that we receive forgiveness of sins. What's the purpose? One, chiefly, we come for the strengthening of our faith in the forgiveness of sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, by receiving the forgiveness of sins, it strengthens our faith. We come for our furtherness and holiness of life. We see that we need help. We want to uh, uh, lead a holy life. 
And that can only come through the forgiveness of our sins and that strengthening. And finally, it would be a testimony of the faith that we share, and we'll see how that happens um, in the next. Eric? So a lot of time then you see the difference in the purpose, specifically with Reformed to ours, is the purpose changes. Um, does that also change with the Roman view? It does. It does. So let's take a look at um, your next page. It should be the one that says Apology Article 13. Is that the next one? Okay. Um, in Apology Article 13, it talks about the number and use of the sacraments. And, and so, as I've already told you about baptism, Lord's Supper, sometimes uh, absolution. These sacraments are to be signs and testimony of God's will toward us. Not us towards God, but God towards us. So, by receiving these things, we say this is a sure sign and a sure testimony. When God says, take this for the forgiveness of sins, and I take it, then I can be assured that I'm forgiven sins, because I've got the promise of God's will toward us. Um, If you... uh, if you come to me and uh, and you say, well, you know, how do you know um, uh, how do you know that that Eric really loves me? And 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 I go, well, um, here I'll give you uh, uh, ten dollars, and that will show you that Eric really loves you. You go, well, how is that? You know, I mean, if I that that's that's nothing. You you got to get it from Eric, right? He's the one that has to give you that that assurance. Um, in the very same way, um, you can't do something to get that assurance. He has to give it to you, and so this has to come from God. So the sacraments are fir- uh, first and foremost signs and testimonies of God's will towards us. Uh, and so, in baptism, he says it's for the remission of sins. So we say, okay, I've been baptized. Now i got that assurance from God. Uh, John 20, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. We go, okay. So when God's pastors go out forgiving sins according to his word, I know what God's will is towards me. Matthew 26, this is my blood of the covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. He wants us to have this, and he's saying you can count on it. These are sure signs given for our faith that we might rest upon it. When we receive these sacraments for the forgiveness of sins, it also does identify us as Christians. We always have to keep it in place. If this isn't first, this won't do it. (laughs) Um, if, 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 if I go around and say, well, I'm just going to do this to show you that here's a Christian. No, I have to receive what he has and trust in that, and then it will show it. So what we find is that they're actually going back to our Reformed and, and Roman distinctions. If the Roman, if the Reformed Church, first one, the Reformed Church, you might remember, says it's not the body and blood. It's just bread and wine. And we're just doing this to show God that we're a Christian. It would be a sign of my faith given to God, not God to me. They will talk about how, what is the sacraments. They'll say it's just an outward sign of an inward act. So, because I gave my life to Jesus, 
by me doing this, it's an outward sign. It shows you that I really care about God. I could do this in a lot of different ways. Um, how do I know that you're really a Christian? Well, I'm going to put on a t-shirt, and it says, I'm a Christian. And that would work. That's a sign, right, uh, um, of my inward act, outwardly, so you could see it. That's what they say is baptism and Lord's Supper. Baptism is commanded. It's just an outward sign of an inward act. What really matters is what's inside. Baptism doesn't give you anything. That's what they would say. Um, uh, the rite of baptism itself doesn't forgive sins. It's just me showing God how serious I am. What about going on and talking about uh, Lord's Supper? Same kind of thing. It says that it is simply an outward sign uh, of an inward act. So when you ask the reform about Lord's Supper. They, the Reform, allege that the Lord's Supper is only an external sign by which Christians are known, and nothing else is offered in it. All you get is mere bread and wine, uh, because Christ's body is, is absent. So why do they do that? Well, obedience, periodically, ought to do what Jesus said, and other people then say, oh, you took Lord's Supper. I can see you're a Christian. But that's all it is. It doesn't give you forgiveness. It doesn't give you the body and blood in Christ. The purpose has changed. Next one, Roman Catholic use of the sacrament. The Roman Catholic does talk about the body and blood being present. Nevertheless, they don't speak of it as a sacrament. They speak of it as a sacrifice. <laughs> hmm. What does this uh, this is the meaning of the church's affirmation that the sacraments act ex opera operata, literally by the very fact of the action being performed. So by doing this thing that God said, they already work. Um, uh, this is from the Catholic Catechism, uh, paragraph 1120. Uh, by virtue of the saving work of Christ accomplished once for all, it follows that the sacrament is not wrought by the righteousness of either the celebrant or the recipient of the power of God, but from the moment it is celebrated in accordance with the intention of the church, uh, the power of Christ acts, and it is uh, uh, has effect. So here's what they teach. They teach that when the priest does the Lord's Supper, he is offering up to the Father a sacrifice. And this sacrifice earns benefits, satisfactions for those making them. It merits for yourself. And you also earn some <coughs> merits for others, which you can give out. You can give it to the living. You can give it to the dead. You can give it whatever. How does this work? Well, all I have to do is be a properly ordained priest, and if I just do it simply by doing the ceremony, you don't have that faith or whatever, the benefit is secured. And then that benefit, it can be given out to whomever I want to give it to. So, at Luther's time, they would go into a small room and the priest would do a, a, a sacrifice. He'd walk through the words of Lord's Supper like, like we would do, and, and then uh, after that, he'd do another one, and then he'd do another. He might do three or four of these all by himself in a little room, 
and and he would say, well, if you give me money, then I'll do it, and it'll be for you. And you give me money for your uh, grandfather who passed away, and I'll give you the benefits of the second one. And there was uh, uh, this continuing offering up of a of a sacrifice. Um, and again, it worked apart from faith. And when I say apart from faith, here's the thing. The people who get the benefits don't have to have, don't have to believe in the words of institution or hear it or trust in it. If I can give the benefit to your grandma, and she's not even here, then she did, there, needed, there didn't need to be faith. Just by doing it. Um, what do we find... Um, let me go on and explain so it's a little easier to see. Uh, we normally make a distinction between a sacrament and a sacrifice. We will always talk about how we have the sacrament of Lord's Supper. The Roman Church will talk about how it is a sacrifice of the Mass. All ceremonies, sacred acts, can be divided up into two parts. Uh, this ought to be on the next sheet or the next page or something like that. You should be able to see. Is it? Is it on the next page? Perfect. Okay. So you've got a ceremony or a sacred act that is being done. We distinguish between these two. A sacrament is a ceremony or a work which God presents to us. That which the promise annexed to the ceremony. So, it's a sacred act. God presents to us that which is promised. He makes a promise to us, I will give you forgiveness of sins, and this sacred act, this sacrament, the arrow goes down. God is giving up, giving us his stuff through this. He said to do it, and he promised to attach forgiveness to it. You might remember going back to baptism. I think I made the example where you know Luther said, if, if God said that you would get forgiveness of sins by lifting up a piece of straw, Luther said, I'd go around lifting up that piece of straw all day because I know that God promised. Well, this is a sacrament. It's a sacred act where God promises to give us stuff. There is another ceremony or sacred act called a sacrifice. A sacrifice is also a sacred act for sure. But this is in which people give to God. Now the arrow goes up. A sacrifice is when I offer up to God my praise. I offer up to God my money. I offer up to God my stuff. Uh, the act goes in a different way. Now, to make it clear, there are two different kinds of sacrifices. There is a Eucharistic sacrifice, which is a thanksgiving sacrifice. This is a sacred act given to God, and we give it to him because we're giving thanks for what we've already received, which is the forgiveness of sins. There is another sacrifice in the scriptures, which is called a propitiatory sacrifice. The propitiatory sacrifice is a sacred act in, uh, uh, given to God, and it is a payment for sins, and it merits forgiveness. A propitiatory sacrifice. Of these two, and if I can put it down, uh, um, sacrament and two different kinds of sacrifice, Jesus Christ made the only propitiatory sacrifice. Nobody else can make this sacred act that's going to merit forgiveness. It had to be 
a Jesus who was true God and true man, who was without sin, and who could offer a perfect sacrifice in pleasing of the Father. And so this propitiatory sacrifice was only Jesus. We can offer up a Eucharistic sacrifice. We can thank him for the propitiatory sacrifice he made for us. We can thank him for that. But we can't merit anything uh, because of that. So there are two kinds of sacrifice. Go to the next page. In the Old Testament, they also had two different kinds. They had propitiatory sacrifices, which all pointed forward to Jesus, where they, they, were, they were, an animal was killed and his blood was shed, and we went, and, and Jesus said, yeah, that's to teach us about the forgiveness of sins. We go, how can the blood of an animal do? Well, we finally, in the coming of Jesus, see that he was the Lamb of God who take away the sin of the world. So this was all object lessons to point forward to the Jesus who did this. There were Eucharistic sacrifices, which they made as well, but the Old Testament also had uh, these two. Go to the next page. The problem is, is that the Roman Church teaches that the sacrifice of the Mass is a sacrifice that New Testament priests make, that's what they would say, and offer up to God Jesus' propitiatory sacrifice, which then merits that. And they would say, oh yeah, they're, they're all together. And we go, how is that? Um, if by doing this, I earn forgiveness, and then by earning this forgiveness, I can give it to you, I can give it to you, I can give it to you, and we go, oh, that's, that's not the way it works. Um, we will talk about Thanksgiving, that kind of sacrifice, for sure. The Levitical sacrifices of the Old Testament have all gone away. Anything in which we try to earn righteousness ex operata just by doing the work um, is works righteousness. The scriptures uh, uh, forbid this uh, concerning. So, so what do we find? Well, we find that in the New Testament, God in the sacraments has a promise connected with the word. And so just as I might give you my word and say to you, I promise that I will forgive you. I promise that I will give you this gift. Sometimes we connect a visible element with it. So I might say to you, I promise that I will give you a car and then I write up a visible contract and I hand it to you and that becomes a visible contract. It works just like my word, but I put it together with something visible. We do this as well. Uh, um, I promise that I will marry you and then I'm going to give you a visible ring in order that this might... What is this? As you trust in the word, you also trust in the sacramental that visible thing that God has given. So God says, I took your sins away on the cross, and as a sure sign of that, I'm going to institute Lord's Supper here. Your body and blood for forgiveness. Here is his promise. How do you receive it? It's not a sacrifice. It's not something we say, well, God, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm going to get some. No, God's 
we're doing this so that you have faith and trust in it. Um, whoever is here and believes the words receiving this has what they say. If someone in here says, yeah, I don't believe it. All right, they don't get it. Um, what about someone who died? What, well, they're not even here. They, don't, they didn't even hear the words. How would they trust in the promise? It has to be received by faith. Uh, the worship of the New Testament is spiritual. It's about the faith in the heart. Uh, that's the way in, it, in which it is received. So to go back uh, to our purpose, um, what happens? It needs to be received by faith. How can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? The third question. It's not the eating and drinking, indeed, that does that. Because um, normally eating and drinking bread and wine doesn't do that kind of thing. It's the words. Their connection, the promise, the words put together with that, given and shed for you for the forgiveness and the remission of sins. These words, beside the bodily eating and drinking, that is, along with them, you got to eat and drink, because that's what he said, but you got to have the words with it. They're the chief thing in the sacrament. So that faith, he that believes these words, has what they say. And expressly, uh, they then have the forgiveness of sins. So faith has to trust in the words. If, if I set out the if I set out bread and wine, and I said, okay, we're all going to eat it. <laughs> but I never said the words of institution. You wouldn't know, well, is this just a snack, or is it this, or is it, you know, I, I don't know, what is this, you know, what, what are we doing here today? Um, you got to have the words so that faith can trust in, oh, this is God's promise to me. Then I have, ah, I'm going to believe what he says in order to receive this. Um, so it's not just the eating and drinking that does them, um, but it is Christ's own words. How is it then that bodily eating and drinking... Uh, uh, forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. Well, it's by virtue of these words given and shed for you for the remission of sins. These great things are contained and offered in the Holy Supper. These words, therefore, are, besides the bodily eating drinking, as the chief thing in the sacrament. Um, uh, here's my contract. I, I promise to give you a million dollars. Now, you got the contract. You believe it? Well, no. You, you know, you're kind of going, listen, you, you're a pastor. You ain't got a million dollars. You know, you're not going to give it to me. Uh, um, the contract itself, the, the element itself, it's the words. And if God says this to you, he can do exactly what he says. If he promises this, uh, um, I'm trusting in the words. For those that come forward to receive Lord's Supper that kneel at the altar, that take into the mouth uh, the, uh, the bread and wine, that is Christ's body and blood, all four element. Does everyone receive this benefit? Now, although everyone to whom the sacrament is given is imparted according to Christ's institution, they actually do receive. They do get the body and blood of Christ, and they get the bread and wine. They get all four elements. Anyone that receives gets it all, of course. Yet only he receives the benefit, which is forgiveness of sins, 
who believes the word of promise, given and shed for the remission of sins. Um, we are going to talk as we go on with the fourth one, and I'm, I'm not going to go through that one now. Again, we're going to come back to that next time. Uh, who then receives the sacrament worthily? Um, who receives it for the forgiveness of sins? Well, there are some things which are fine. Fasting and bodily preparation, they're, they're fine outward training, but that doesn't make it so that, that you receive the benefits. He is truly worthy and well prepared who has faith. Faith in these words, given and shed for you for the remission of sins. He who does not believe these words or doubts them is unworthy and unprepared for the words for you require all hearts to believe. Um, there should be one more. Um, do you have another sheet? That's the priesthood one. That's not the right one I'm looking for. Um, but I can't remember where I put it. So what do we find? Um, <coughs> let me give you this chart. <clears throat> Once again, the distinction between uh, the Reformed and the Roman. The Roman Church, uh, the Council of Trent, Session 22, says this. If anyone says that in the Mass, a true and proper sacrifice is not offered to God, that's what I say. I say it's a sacrament. It's not a, a, a sacrifice offered up to God. If anyone says that, that it's not a proper sacrifice, or if anyone says that to be offered is nothing else but that Christ has given us to eat. If, if all you're saying is that you're giving out uh, uh, Christ's body and blood to eat and to drink for forgiveness, if that's all you're going to say... The Roman Church says, let that person be anathema, let them be condemned. Um, that is the way they looked at what the Lutherans were teaching, saying, no, no, this is what the scriptures said, this is what the church has always taught. And they said, no, let that be anathema. Uh, they go on to say, do this in remembrance of me, which is better translated, offer this as my memorial offering. Make this the sacrifice, offer it up. The words, and I'm going to get to this next time, this do this in remembrance of me, is, is about faith. It's not about making a sacrifice. Uh, in the Roman site, New Advent, it says, In truth, the Eucharist performs at once two functions. It's both that of a sacrament and that of a sacrifice. And that's what we find. There are times in which I will talk about these sacramental things, and I would say, you yeah. know, the body and blood present, and go, oh, yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. Uh, um, and I go, well, it, it, those who come forward and receive the forgiveness, say, oh, yeah, 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 that's right, whatever. But at the same time, why is that? They also have to make it a sacrifice. Um, and it has to be something that, we, that the priest offers up. He secures the goodies by going through the motions, by doing it, whether there's faith or not. And then he can give it out to certain people, whether they have faith or not, living or dead. That's what, that's the heart of the sacrifice of the Mass. The Lutherans say, we likewise reject and condemn all of these abuses of the sacrament as an abomination of the sacrifice of the Mass, that is, for the living of the dead, in which faith is not required and blessings are given out, except for Brava. Um, nevertheless, <laughs> there's the Luther quote, I'd rather... 
Uh, and rather than to have mere wine with the enthusiasts, I would stick with mere blood with the papists. Um, I do support where they speak of a sacrament, and they do talk about the body and blood of Christ, and they do talk about forgiveness. Um, but, but the sacrifice, I cannot. The Reformed churches, on the other hand, what do they do? Uh, they say, I have no use for the notion of a real true body that does not exist physically and definitely and distinctly in some place. And that sort of nonsense got up by the word triflers. Uh, uh, you guys are just, you know, uh, uh, when you say Christ's body and blood, he's not there. He's not there. Zwingli says the sacraments serve not as God's testimony, but are a public testimony of a previous grace. It's just us showing God how serious we are. Calvin says Christ is present in the Lord's Supper, but not physically or bodily. Um, his presence in the sacrament is spiritual or dying. You know, Jesus is everywhere. So, of course, he's in the Lord's Supper. I don't know. No, he, he actually does. Um, what do we say about this? The Lutherans say this, where it does not depend upon the faith or unbelief of man. Uh, it depends upon God's word and ordinance. That's what makes it what it is. Unless they first change God's word and ordinance and interpret it otherwise, as the enemies of the sacrament do at the present day, who, of course, have nothing but bread and wine. For they also do not have the words and appointed ordinance of God. In other words, they're not doing what he said, and they don't claim to. They've perverted and changed them according to their own false notions. So the purpose for these, as you can see, one turns it into a sacrifice by which we earn stuff, the other one turns it into a sacrifice by which we show other people that we are saved. But neither one simply have it as a sacrament by which God gives us a, um, a, a sign, a promise uh, that we can trust in. Which church has the Lord's <coughs> Supper? Um, it's the church that follows it upon God's word, the one who does it in accordance with his uh, ordinance, as he has said. Not just bread and wine, the phonetic sign of institution, but particularly nothing can be a sacrament without God's command and the appointed use for which it is instituted in God's word. So that gets me to the end of those, what is it? Four elements, two heavenly, two visible. Uh, that's number one. The second was the words of institution. We've come back to those again and again and again. The third one is what's benefits. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not that we earn something. It's not that we show people something. We actually get the forgiveness of sins and we, uh, in this. Um, in the fifth and final question, we'll be talking about, all right, so let's receive this sacrament. How do we receive it worthily and in what way? Uh, what does this show? And so we're going to be coming back to uh, this salutary use. This is going to include talking about the confession of faith, talking about uh, uh, closed and open communion. Uh, it's going to be talking about receiving uh, in a, in a God-pleasing way and, and how that happens. So we'll be returning to that next Comments, questions? All right. So, prayer will conclude.
Heavenly Father, uh, you sent us uh, your Son, who showed his love by his suffering and death for us. And as a true memorial of his death, uh, he instituted his last will and testament that we might receive his very body and blood, and with that receive the benefits that he'd won by shedding his blood for us. Help us uh, that in faith we might cling to those words and receive forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.